on Facebook. The stupidest crime I've ever heard was when my parents were in Boston, um, there was a guy who robbed a bank, but he wrote his ransom note on the back of one of his own checks. So they ran him back. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Is that what you really just deserve to get arrested? Hello everyone, and welcome to Theo Table, where angels dancing on the head of a pin can change your life. I'm Aiden, also known as Celtic Catholic Fire. I'm Jarek. I'm Maria. And I'm Julie. Uh, we are all current students or recent alumni of the University of Notre Dame and members of its Theology Club. Every week, the Theology Club has an event called Theo Table, where we sit down and discuss a theological topic of interest over dinner, and this podcast has grown straight out of this model. Our topic today is about how you use reason and faith to understand God. In the modern discourse, a lot of people talk about faith as if it is belief without proof or sometimes even belief in the face of evidence to the otherwise. However, plenty of philosophers and theologians, from Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages to Alan Plantinga today, have talked about proofs for God's existence. But is that a question we can really prove? And what does the church have to say? Well, Vatican <laughs> one uh, effectively says yes. It says that we can demonstrate God's existence from our knowledge of science and uh, natural reason. That is like philosophy. Um, yeah, but like I can, and I'm not exactly sure what the reasoning for this is. But I mean, isn't there some scriptural verses that might tend one to believe the otherwise? For example, uh, in the parable, not in the parable, but uh, in the story of Doubting Thomas, when Jesus appears in the upper room, I believe in John's gospel, where he says, blessed are those who have believed and not seen. So isn't there uh, some sort of virtue to believing things without proof? Yeah, that's true. Well, okay. Um, I'm going to really weird and disjointed. I'm Clean, clean this up. Do with it what you will. But uh, you know how older texts like St. Thomas Aquinas talks about philosophy as a type of science and theology as well as the highest science? And so when you talk about the Doubting Thomas passage from the gospel, it almost recalls kind of that ordering of the sciences that the natural sciences are actually a body or a type of knowledge that's you know, very intricate, but lower than something like theological knowledge. Um, in natural sciences, you know stuff by working with empirical evidence, right? And so Downing Thomas believes when he touches the side of Christ and everything, and, and that and that proves it to him. It's, it's, a, it's a proof, like, I don't know, something you would find in a lab. But Jesus says, what, what was it, blessed are those who believe without having seen? Yeah, yeah. something like that. You know, so blessed are those who are able to believe and recognize the truth without going through that empirical stage. And to, to me, that kind of recalls, um, you know, how theology is considered to be the highest philosophy, that you have knowledge given to you by reason and, and empirical evidence and stuff, but also knowledge from revelation. Mm, yeah, that's possible. Mm -hmm. And also, like, even if Jesus says, like, blessed are those who see and do not, or rather, who believe and do not see, um, it doesn't mean that everything is based on... I mean, by that logic, if we're going to apply that to everything, 
we shouldn't try and understand anything except we should just take everything on pure faith, everything about religion. And that's not quite true. I mean, we can, there are at least some religious claims that we think we can talk reasonably about and go through arguments about. And if we're going to apply that logic of the Gospel of John to everything, that would not be true. Well, on what you were just saying, Jerk, I think there's two different questions there. Um, mm. One is, can you reason at all through claims about theology? And the other is much simpler. It's, can you prove God exists with reason? Mm. Yeah. Um, I think talking to the first question, though, sort of drawing back to what Maria said about theology is the highest science. It's So it's not just that we're taking things of theology on faith alone. Because that's not really true. Theology isn't just, this is what the church teaches and we believe all of this on faith. That's not how this works. Theology ultimately is a rational science. We draw from the truths of Revelation. We start from Revelation. But we've. But part of Revelation is that God made humans reasonable. God made mm. our reason in the image of his own reason. So our reason can be trusted. And so we can reason about things. We can reason Some about... Well, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, that's true. And, like, maybe it depends on how seriously we take our being formed of the image and likeness of God, and, like, you know, to what degree are we formed of the image and likeness of God. Right. Um, St. Thomas, again, to go back to St. Thomas, he's this funny part where he's asking, is God a body? And one of the objections is, well, God made us in our image and likeness, and we are bodies, therefore God is a body. Um, it's it's absurd and clearly, like, not true, because um, it's an objection which Thomas then completely dismantles. But, like, yeah, it just depends on how seriously we take us being formed in the image and likeness of God, and in what manner we're formed in the image and likeness of God. Is it just that our soul is in the image and likeness of God, and what capacities of our soul are in the image and likeness of God, to put it in, like, philosophical terms? And, like, sort of... But going off the part about reason being able to be trusted, I guess then people who are familiar with philosophy might say, okay, um, why don't all philosophers believe in God then? If reason can be trusted to this degree, and if Vatican I really is saying that we can know God through reason and science, why isn't there incontrovertible proof? Well, there are proofs. And just because... And you can argue about some of the different proofs that are out there. But just because maybe we don't have the perfect proof yet doesn't mean one doesn't exist. Mm. Well, true. Yeah. Also, you say just because we don't have the perfect proof yet doesn't mean one doesn't exist. Um, eventually, at the end of the day, how is one supposed to judge whether or not one proof? Like there, there are a myriad of different possible rational proofs for God's existence. Um, like, Peter Kreeft has a nice web page where you go, and it's just, like, 20 rational proofs for God's existence. And people react <laughs> to those very differently. Um, <laughs> you you know what would be fantastic? Of... If you had a restaurant, like a Chinese restaurant, and instead of the fortune cookie with the little, like, you'll have a great day. <laughs> a rational proof for God. Boom! <laughs> oh, my goodness. That'd be Maria... one of the greatest forms of evangelization I can think of. That would be a great project for some, like, Christian Chinese restaurant, like, Chinese restaurant run by Chinese Christians. But for real, Maria, like, people have different... You can try and, like, isolate the question of God's existence or theology from your 
emotions and presuppositions and desires all you want. But at the end of the day, that is very difficult and people will react better to different flavors of argument. So what Aiden was saying, like, we might not have the perfect argument yet, but like, does the church actually tell us that everyone will agree on the one, like, are we, are we chasing something that doesn't exist? Is there going to be one? It seems like something that might not exist. Well, I think we can separate the idea of the argument being perfect, like, like it's yeah, logically like sound. Yeah, we can separate it from being, like, perfectly logical from being something people would be, like, 100% on board with. Because if you take, right. like, the again, back to this great Chinese restaurant evangelization example, <laughs> you can imagine someone has this giant, like, fortune cookie, and they break it open, and it's a scroll. And the scroll is just, like, one of Thomas Aquinas' <laughs> proof of the existence of God. It might be perfectly logical, but people aren't going to want to have their dessert interrupted by metaphysics. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it depends on the crowd you're catering to, but continue. Yes. So I do I do think that's right, that even if a proof is perfect, that we know God exists based on this proof, it's 100% logical that it works, people aren't necessarily going to agree with it because, it actually, uh, not Fulton J.C., Newman, Cardinal Newman. Cardinal Newman had a great thing on this, where he was, his whole point was that people don't come to their beliefs based on logic. They come to their beliefs based on their own presuppositions about life, right. about even morality sometimes. And our mm-hmm. presuppositions are much stronger than our reason. So even if we have perfect reason, if it doesn't match with our presuppositions, the presuppositions and the uh, essentially the emotions, the pre-existing right. biases, they're going to win every time. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's so a, that's are we a just saying that insight just into human God psychology? That's like an unsatisfying conclusion. It does. And one of the things, uh, I don't actually believe this, but to kind of devil's advocate for that, so human beings go into something formed by uh, emotional and uh, situational presuppositions, whatever, so this means that we, in theory, have perfect reason that reflects kind of uh, our being created in the image and likeness of God, but we can't actually access that on Earth? Is that it's is it a little too idealistic? I don't think so, because I think that takes seriously the idea of us being fallen. I mean, like an Augustinian conception of our fallenness, does that mean that this light of natural reason can't get us to the existence of God just because our reason is so fallen and so flawed that we just can't? Well if you're like an old school Lutheran it does. Well, or uh, even if you're like a like a really strong Augustinian. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess not universally would be the best answer to that. Okay. That like we could we could talk about some of the different proofs that are out there and why people like or dislike them, but there's lots of different ways people have tried to go about proving God. And I tend to think that some of them actually are perfectly logically sound. Like Thomas Aquinas' ways, for example. We can go into those in a minute. But just because something's logically sound, some people are going to see that, and some people aren't going to see that. And if someone is able to separate themselves from their biases or their assumptions, then maybe they're able to essentially be open-minded. If you're approaching these proofs with an open mind... Maybe they have more of an impact. Right. And I say that even for people who are Christians, who are believers. If you're not if coming into those into like logical arguments about God, trying to understand things better, if you're 
if you have your conception of God and are going to stick with it no matter what the proof says, then you might say, oh, okay, well, it proves that God exists without really thinking about what it says about God. Because that's really the important thing, right? Talking about these yeah. proofs in terms of what they say about God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe that's like where what Vatican One was saying might be applicable in some sense. Um, like, it's not just saying... It's not just like taking a theological claim and pushing it onto philosophy. It's saying, like, this is the sort of being that we believe God is. A being who is rationally determinable because he created us in his image and likeness with reason and all of that stuff. Um, a being who is knowable through science because science is the study of his creation. Um, See, now people might object to that. People might say, like, it's really common nowadays, the the, the, the the great atheists, you've got Dawkins and all that fine, all of those, the four horsemen. <laughs> Quote-unquote great, yeah. <laughs> that would say, science, as far as we can tell, says God doesn't exist. So, how would you say that God is scientific? Because the church does teach that, that God is, in some sense, corresponding to science. Their arguments are just like, I mean, like, I don't know if you want to get into, like, the messiness of what they actually say. Um... But as far as I know, I don't know any philosopher who takes any of them seriously, because their arguments just seem invalid at every turn. Or they're just, like, Dawkins and Hitchens and Dennett and Harris. Their arguments are invalid, you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, so, Jarek, so maybe serious philosophers don't take them for granted. Um, And that's good news for us, I suppose. But what do you say (laughs) to the, I I don't even want to make up a number because it's probably too low. So we're going to say millions because that's too low. Millions yeah, of young people totally out there who have just tasted a bit of science, they're, they're, in, they're in 10th grade, they're getting taught more advanced science than they have before. It's not rocket science yet, but their catechesis ended in 6th grade, and Dawkins <laughs> and Hitchens look like geniuses to them, even if they're not philosophically sound. How do you... Yeah. Can you argue them into the faith? Should you... Can you not argue a person to the faith? Like, how do you answer the human problem, like, happening on streets all over everywhere right now? I don't know if it's so much arguing them into the faith, and I honestly think that Christian philosophers cannot approach life Mm -hmm. trying to prove the faith, or else that really does, like, reduce God and reduce the faith into just nothing more than just, like, logical axioms, which it isn't. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Faith is mysterious, and faith is meant to be lived out um, in liturgy and prayer and and in life. Um, But I think the best thing we can do is try and show that it's reasonable, because I think a lot of people have, like, problems with... It just seems unreasonable. It just seems contrary to reason. It just seems irrational. And that only brainwashed people would believe it. But I think that the the strength in philosophy... Uh, the strength in Christian philosophy is being able to show, no, even if this doesn't demonstrate to you that we're right, at least demonstrates to you that we're reasonable. Right. Do you think... It would be helpful to go into a bit of an overview about Kant, though. And, you know, because mm. the whole goal of Vatican I is to to strike a balance between reason and faith, that you can't separate the two from each other. And in the modern age, I'm kind of reiterating what you're saying, but in the modern age, if you really focus on this kind of, uh, I don't know, millennial sentiment that... God and faith is irrational and you try to combat it and you make everything, you, re- you reduce God down to a logical proposition, you're kind of pulling a Kant, right? Yeah, and then 
Yeah, I mean, that's... And I don't think that that's what Vatican I is trying to do. No. I mean, I think Vatican I... I think you mentioned this earlier, that Vatican I is, like, trying to find the middle ground between the two extremes. Of yeah. Them. One being hyper-rationalism, and one being hyper-emotivism, anti-rationalism. Right. As regards faith, anyway. Um, and I think that you're right that reducing God to being purely a function of reason would be going way too far. In some sense, though, might we say that saying God is scientific, in other words, you can see God in the natural world, might help to alleviate the idea of him being purely rational? Because it seems to me that the some of the better ways to see God as quote-unquote scientific is to see him as the author of creation, capital A, author, the creator. So in other mm-hmm. words, we can see his mark at everything that's made. I mean, if you want to get down to the really nitty-gritty, like the strength of gravity, for example, right. or things like that. <laughs> if it was a little different, we couldn't have stars, we couldn't have atoms, we couldn't have life in the universe. Everything seems to be fine-tuned, for lack right. of a better word, for yeah. us, for life, for beings who can be made in the image of God and who can worship God. So intelligent design. Well, <laughs> not in terms of evolution. Not in terms of evolution. For the record, <laughs> which pope? Which pope was it that approved? Like said, Catholics can believe evolution in good conscience. Right? Ben, like, Benny the Sixteenth, maybe. Eighteen hundreds. Oh, eighteen hundreds. Like Pius the Tenth. This is like the eighteen hundreds. Like mid eighteen hundreds. Pius the Tenth or Pius the Ninth or someone like that. Yeah. So Catholics like around are... the Vatican One period, somebody said Catholics can believe in evolution in in full consciousness. And I think at this point. Almost all Catholics do believe in evolution. Well, um, but that's not to say that we believe in, like, a Darwinian evolution that isn't... Because well, I think the problem that Catholics see is that the idea of evolution and the idea of God as author of the universe are not, like, mutually no. exclusive. You can believe both things, and a great majority of Catholics do believe both things. And I mean, Genesis, the creation story in Genesis, and I always found this really cool, says that... God told the earth to bring forth creatures. It's not the mm. humankind is unique in that yeah. God shaped man from the ground. For all the rest of creation, he says, let the seas bring forth creatures, let the earth bring forth creatures. It really mm. does suggest God guiding a natural process like evolution to bring about his desired result. Oh, that's so cool. I never thought about that. Yeah, that's true. That's really cool. Huh. Sweet. Yeah, and so that, in that sense, God is... Although I, I'm still not fully hooked on what you said about God being scientific as a solution to God being over-rationalized. What did you mean by that? Okay, yeah, I, I, maybe I didn't explain myself as well as I could have. My my sort of point with that was that you, God as scientific more means God as creator, so looking at creation and seeing the mark of God. And so what that does is it makes God personable. It makes him a person, a being who has done things and has will and intent, who Mm -hmm. sees the universe and wanted it to be a place for us, Mm -hmm. at least to some degree. Like, there could be other, like, Catholics are cool with aliens, too, that's a thing. But if aliens exist, God might have intended parts of creation for them as well. We just don't know. But at the very least, around here, the the local solar system, (laughs) it seems to be pretty, like, shaped by a creator for us. So mm-hmm. so it serves, serves as a foundation for making God relatable, uh, personable, so to speak. And that argument can go too far. Like, So, it's funny, in, there, there was a class in which we were studying like, 
the extraterrestrial life debate. And, like, there were some people who were like, oh, you know, God said in Genesis, let him make, make the sun in the, in the sky for, what was it, for signs and for times and for seasons and for years, something like that, which implied to them that, like, God made the sun to keep time, and therefore because there were other stars, they have to be all these other aliens, too, out there, or because, like, what other function would they have? Would those stars have if there weren't other living beings there? Um, God's literally a divine watchmaker. God literally is a divine watchmaker building millions and billions of clocks. (laughs) Jarek, when I... People made this argument. And, like, John Adams in a private letter said, like, you know, the incarnation is incompatible with aliens, and we know aliens exist, therefore the incarnation can't have happened. (laughs) (laughs) Jarek, I I did an SSLP the summer after my freshman year, and I was in this tiny little town, 900 people, in the middle of Utah, and there were the Mormons and the Catholic Um, Church. um, SSLP? Yes. Sorry, Maria, you might want to explain SSLP. Oh, uh, it's a summer service learning program through the university we all went to, um, where you're paid... uh, basically a scholarship to do a service program for two months. And so there were three churches, the Mormons, the Catholics, and this fundamentalist Baptist church, which said that aliens existed, but they were actually in the center of the earth, and they were an enlightened form of being. And so God created them as something that you can, like, progress and develop into, so the holier you become, the more you emulate them, right? And then, like, your final goal in heaven (laughs) is actually found in the center of the earth. I will send you. Uh, wait, I, I'm, I'll send you the link to the website after the podcast is over. But this was a legitimate thing, and they would go door to door, and it was super impressive because they had more converts than the Mormons, who wow. like you know Patton going door to door. It was amazing. <laughs> oh, it no. was amazing. Oh no! Oh lord! Wow! So yeah, aliens. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be an example of things being taken too far. Yeah, right. Point in case. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so natural theology can go too far, but it is a valid form of reasoning about God. <laughs> I think that's the conclusion out of all Just of this. Just not in Utah. <laughs> Just not in Utah. <sighs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I guess, like, one sort of fundamental question that we do have to ask, um, lest we sort of turn into, like, pedantic people in an ivory tower is like, what does this at all have to do with our life as Christians? Does our ability to, does the fact that God can be proved rationally through science and philosophy, does that do anything for us as Christians living our everyday life? Well, it certainly is very, very useful. And a lot of modern Christians and Christians from throughout time can be very grateful for that because I know, at least this is true for myself, and I think it's true for a lot of younger Catholics today and Catholics today that weren't catechized so well, they sort of, they argued themselves into the faith. Um, Their introduction to the faith wasn't necessarily watching it lived, watching pious, like seeing holy people or being part of a Catholic culture. It was these rational arguments they found on the internet when they started looking into what the church teaches. Um, But I was reading uh, an article by uh, a Dominican who studies at Notre Dame, uh, Justin, Father Brophy, um, Mm -hmm. Justin Brophy. And he pointed out that that like intellectual form of Catholicism can become problematic um, and exclusionary, like 
you start to define the faith by doctrine and not by people and the church by doctrine and not people trying to practice it. So does anybody have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I'd almost wonder, um, going back to kind of Jarek's idea about, a, or his introduction of the idea that Vatican I was trying to find a balance between faith and reason. And then to your point, I was just wondering if you guys think it would be fair to say that a society or a group's understanding of God influences the way they understand human nature. That if a society says God is rational, then the then they're going to see human nature as something that's rational, chaotic, and ultimately slide into nihilism. If they see God as something that's mm. who's solely rational, then they're going to do the Kantian, uber-rational, ethical-type thing and completely miss out on a very rich faith. I don't know. Do you think that would be a fair thing to say? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was at Seek 2017. I was at a talk by Scott Hahn where he talked about something like this in terms of Christianity and Islam, actually. That Islam, one of its big differences, aside from like the Trinity right. and things like that, one of its big differences is it doesn't conceive of God as father. Yeah. <laughs> that it doesn't see God as a father figure. It sees him as a lord, as in some sense merciful, but not as father. And in fact has deep problems with calling God father because that's not how they see God. So, in other words, it's the language we use and the terms we use about God really matter because... Ultimately, we're trying to live out a relationship with God, right? We're trying to live out our faith and, tr and to worship and live with and strive towards the life of our Lord. And to do that, we have to know who our Lord and our God is. And so knowing God as a father, someone who, like in the parable of the prodigal son, will, will always be ready to forgive if you repent, is very different than seeing God as a Lord who only has justice and does not have the mercy of a father towards his children. And I think to bring this over to, like, to directly apply the whole God being rational sort of thing, um, I think if we conceive of God as totally irrational, then we think that there's no way for us to know yeah. him in some there's a There's a sense in which we can't get to know him except through more sort of subjective, emotivist means, like... And then, in that sense, if we can't get to know him except by our subjective experience, then we sort of fall into individualistic sort of... I think, in my opinion, there's no way of talking about God solely based on your own emotions and not reducing him to, like, just creating God in your own image, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. The... And if God is something objective and something rational... In that sense, you could have multiple people who can all be striving towards the same God and reach some common conception of God. All of a sudden, your faith life, your life of your your relationship with God becomes a communal affair and not just an individual one. Which I think to Catholics who believe in the church is really important. I think that's I yeah. think that's something Oh, sorry. Yeah, ahead, um, that's something that's really cool and special about the Catholic Church. Because we have famous Protestant philosophers like Kierkegaard and uh, uh, what was his name, Georg Hamann, who said that your experience of faith is not something that can be directly shared. But a Catholic can say your your individual experience 
of faith and relationship with God cannot be directly shared in that way they'd agree because you often reduce it to, you know, emotions and making God in your own image. So we have that and it's intensely personal and, and individual, but we also have the sacraments and a common source of grace and coming to know God, which we all experience together. So we have language and framework with which to discuss this in. If, if that didn't exactly, make sense, exactly. you can cut it, but no, 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 you're good. No, that was per- absolutely that makes perfect sense. Yeah. That God is, and God desires to be worshiped right. communally. God desires to be known as a community that like the book of revelations talks about the end of history the best thing in all of human history is going to be when the church as a unity as a community enters into the eternal marriage with god with christ yeah the i mean god made covenants in israel with not just people like abraham and isaac but also with bodies he made a covenant right. with the people of israel i.e. like covenant. bodies of yeah. christ church. <laughs> not, not yeah, like exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> and Paul talks about the church right. as the body of Christ so much that it's almost like impossible for us to read Paul and think of faith as a purely right. individual thing. Well, right, right, which is why it's, I don't know about, disappointing is not the right word, but just kind of, so many people tend to think of their relationship with God as their own personal thing, and they don't need to go to church. They don't need to go to any denomination because it's my relationship with God. Why should I need to? I can pray in my house. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Whereas it's, but it's not just that, that God isn't just someone you relate to. He's also someone you know, someone you know reasonably, rationally. And in that way, can approach as a community who all have the same foundational understanding of what it means to be related to God. To, to use the phrase of a, of a very popular priest and teacher around Notre Dame's campus. Uh, related, in ro- related in love, that is. <laughs> that the way we relate to God in love is as a community through the sacraments, through the Eucharist, Mass, Confession. All of that requires a common understanding of who God is and what his being is. Yeah, And not just a common understanding, but even just the belief that we can have a common understanding. Oh, exactly, exactly. I think then, if, if anyone else um, has any other thoughts, is there is there is there anything that we missed? Do you we do you think we should give brief summaries of Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God and Thomas's five ways? Because we mentioned both, I think. Um. Um. The ontological argument came up in the oh okay test run. I don't think we need to summarize them. I think just like describing them is. I don't know. I don't think we should... Because yeah. that can get a little bit too, like... That's you know, another 20 minutes. Yeah. Time-wise? We're at about okay. half an hour. That's pretty good. How would we... I think, unless anyone has any burning thoughts, like, that's a good time. Yeah, and yeah, it ended organically. We can start so don't up. stab it and yeah, try yeah. and... DNR! Cool. DNR the podcast! <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, how about, how about this? For all you listening at home, here's your homework if you want homework. There are actually proofs of the existence of God. We kind of mentioned them, but don't go over them. So if you're interested, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas's Five Ways are a place to start, as is St. Anselm's ontological argument. So if you're interested in actually reading proofs for the existence of God, that's where I'd start looking things up. 
And also know that there's a lot of, like, people have a lot of thoughts on these proofs. A lot of, a lot of thoughts on these proofs. Why they're invalid, why they are in fact valid, instead of, you know, um, you can spend a long time studying, you can probably spend a lifetime studying these proofs. And people have spent lifetime studying these proofs. Um, but if you do want also a more complicated, more complex sort of evaluation of different types of proofs for God, um, the philosopher Edward Faser has this great book called Five Proofs for the Existence of God or something like that, which goes through five different historical approaches to proving God's existence. And that one I've heard is also a really, really good book if you're interested. Excellent. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Um, before you leave, please pray with us the prayer of St. Thomas Aquinas. Grant us, O Lord, minds to know you, hearts to seek you, wisdom to find you, conduct pleasing to you, faithful perseverance in waiting for you, and the hope of finally embracing you. Amen. 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 Woo! Like that's a podcast! Woo!